Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Interesting tech story we covered this week. China is pouring billions of dollars into research and development of quantum technology, hoping to dominate a field with big economic and military applications. And while the U.S. still leads where it matters most in making quantum computers, China is pulling ahead in quantum communications and satellites. For more on this, we spoke to Gene Whalen, reporter for The Washington Post, and we start off by talking about what quantum technology is. Quantum technology is just new forms of machines and devices that will eventually, scientists hope, be able to process and transmit and and take images of information and images better. Does that make sense? So, so new devices for processing and transmitting information and new devices for imaging things, kind of like high-tech cameras almost. We're still a, a long ways off from really getting this technology right. As far as like a a quantum computer going, some experts say we're still a decade off before we're even there. Most scientists agree, well, it'll probably be a decade or more before we get a fully functioning quantum computer. Right now, there are some prototypes out there, but they're not even as strong and fast yet as existing computers are. So it'll be at least 10 years before a fully up and running quantum computer might be available and I should say all of, all of this technology is based on quantum particles, so on atoms or subatomic particles, which behave in a very peculiar way. They have behavior defined by the laws of quantum mechanics. So the idea is by harnessing the kind of weird behavior of these particles, we might be able to process information and transmit it in new, powerful ways that our existing digital technology cannot so tell us now where we are in this competition. Where, are, where is the United States leading in this and where is China starting to pull ahead? So the United States is leading in the most important part of the field, which is uh, trying to build a quantum computer. And that's largely thanks to a lot of investment by big companies like IBM and Google, Intel, Microsoft. There are also a bunch of startups that have put a lot of money into this because quantum computers might have huge commercial applications. Banks think they might be able to use them to do very complicated new calculations that might help them trade and make money faster. Pharmaceutical companies hope to use them to carry out elaborate new calculations through which they might identify new molecules that they can use to treat disease, new drugs. So, right. so there's a lot of potential commercial potential here, and therefore companies are pouring a lot into, into that in the U.S. Do we have... Uh, quantum computers already like this? There are prototypes. So IBM has one up online, actually. I'm not sure that your average Joe would be able to figure out how to use it online. I (laughs) can't say that I I got that far myself, but but I think companies are trying to use it to see how quantum computers might be useful to them in the future. But, But like I say, they're not stronger than today's computers. I think they're just early prototypes where companies like Google and IBM are attempting to understand whether they can actually like build on a foundation. Almost like so, proof of concept. Yeah. If we can kind of yeah. get on the way yeah. to it, then we can scale it up. Where is China starting to make some headway? China has made more headway in quantum communications. These are like communication networks, 
that carry data and conversations back and forth through fiber optic cables. And they send qubits through those cables, which makes for a more secure transmission system. A qubit-based system is harder to hack. So the Chinese are hoping to protect their communications better by employing these systems. And they've built a, a big fiber optic link between Shanghai and Beijing and a few other cities, and they're hoping to build these links all over China. They're also launching satellites, and they hope to have the satellites also be able to carry out quantum communication with ground stations. So for them, it's more of a defensive move. It's a way to protect their sensitive government and military and business communications from hacking. So the damage for us and all of that could be for the U.S. could be that we will have an increasingly hard time eavesdropping on China and its military and, and government in the future. Gene Whalen, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. The story we've been covering for quite some time is the partnership between doorbell camera company Ring and hundreds of police forces across the country. This partnership allows law enforcement to gain access to homeowners' cameras, forming a new neighborhood watch. Privacy experts have sounded the alarms about giving police more surveillance access and contributing to an endless stream of suspicion. For more on this story, we spoke to Drew Harwell. He's the AI reporter for The Washington Post about the rapid growth of this program. So you can just tell, like, there's been such a huge expansion of those participating agencies. And they're all over the country. They're around L.A. They're around a ton of different metro areas across the country. And they're changing sort of the power dynamic for how police and homeowners can interact. So there are some limits on what police can request in terms of video. You know, they have to draw a box around the area they're looking for. They have to set a specific time range. And the homeowners can still say no. They can opt out of providing that footage. So there is some amount of control. But, you know, the worry from privacy and civil liberties advocates is like, are we giving too much away? Are we setting up this kind of surveillance infrastructure where police can see a ton about not just sort of our neighborhoods, but our own homes and how it looks like when people come home and people visit and there are new people in the neighborhood. So, you know, every time there's a new camera or a new microphone or a new sensor in this residential space that we've never really had it in before, there's concern that you're edging toward this feature big brother landscape where you're never really too far from being recorded or being seen. And the company does kind of buy into this perceived need for more self-surveillance, you know, the fear aspect. But this kind of workaround going through Ring and partnering with law enforcement, it's different. The scrutiny is different as if it was a program that wholly came from the government or your state officials. That's one point people have been making is that if the police required every homeowner to have a camera on their doorstep that they could look at at any time, there'd be a huge amount of public blowback, right? In this scenario, this is a company that offers a product that is convenient, that allows people to understand who's coming in and out of their house. So we're looking at kind of the business side of this equation, and yet the same sort of privacy problems are still there. And so the fact that kind of Ring and police are are working closely together, and the fact that Ring wants to forge more partnerships down the road, you know, it just raises these questions of what kinds of limits are there? What kinds of rules should the police and these private companies follow when it comes to gathering data on normal people's travels and normal people's lives? A lot of the action that takes place with these two partnerships between Ring and law enforcement is on the Neighbors app. This is the app that people can upload their videos to. And, uh, you know, you can say a, a suspicious guy walking around the neighborhood, things like that. What's the breakdown of how much people are posting there? 
I think like a third of the stuff that goes on to neighbors, which is their, you know, big sort of crime related social network actually ends up being, I had an unknown visitor at my house or there's been like a suspicious incident. And, you know, in some cases, this is like some person coming up to your door and taking a box from your doorstep. But in some occasions, it's like kids going to a door to sell candy from camera's standpoint, they're getting all of that. And so it's really up to the homeowner of what they want to do with that information. So a third of the posts are suspicious activity. You've got maybe a fifth of the posts that are like lost pets or so. And then pretty much everything else is for actual criminal reports. Right. You spoke to a police officer with the Norfolk Police Department in Virginia, and he kind of positioned this perfect example why a lot of people might have a problem with this. He said, This app is great because a neighbor could post something suspicious and then everybody can watch that in real time and be on the lookout for somebody. But Ring, for their part, would remove a video like that because there's nothing specific about it. There's no uh, attempted criminal activity or something that would be a cause for concern. So this is kind of that fine line that everybody has to ride when they're posting stuff. And that's actually kind of a change from Ring's past policy where they used to let anybody post whatever they want. They started to reel that in and force people to only be posting stuff where there is, you know, a real legitimate reason for suspicion or a real crime happening. Because, you know, in a lot of the examples we've seen, it ends up being young kids who are maybe just asking to use the phone or something. You know, people will see that on their ring and then post that onto these public feeds. And so, you know, if you're the parent of that kid, you may not appreciate having your child sort of insinuated as being a criminal and having their face put onto this public social network. And of course, there's the dimension that we can't ignore, which is that a lot of this stuff overlaps with racial profiling. When we think about neighborhood watches and and kind of who, which kinds of people are deemed not to belong in any one specific neighborhood. Overall, though, police do seem pretty happy with this partnership. It does give them a new tool to use when they're trying to look for somebody, but it, it seems like they're all good with this. From a lot of the officers I've talked to, yeah, they are good with this because in the past they'd have to go knock on a bunch of doors hope people are help are helpful and maybe not be anywhere closer to an answer. Now they can hit a couple buttons and get back a lot of evidence they may never have really been able to search for in the first place. Drew Harwell covering artificial intelligence for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This next story has to do with another iconic industry changing with modern times. Americans are eating more beef than they have in a decade resulting in a higher number of hides available to manufacture leather products. But the rise of athleisure and vegan clothing is actually speeding the decline of the leather industry. We spoke to Lydia Mulvaney, reporter for Bloomberg News, about how leather is losing. People love to eat beef, and Americans are eating more beef than they have in like 10 years, so it's kind of at a high right now. But at the same time, we've gotten less fond of leather, and so the industry is really struggling. This is kind of new for them, but people don't like leather, and they're actually going to have to go out and like promote their products. Before, it was just kind of a given. There was like this premium product that people really wanted and, and desired, and so that's changed. And part of this decline in the leather industry has to do with uh, the rise of synthetic fabrics, things that contain no leather at all. They call it vegan clothing sometimes, you know, that doesn't have any animal byproducts in it. And that clothing, those accessories, all that stuff has increased 54% 
in the retail market it just in this year. Yeah. So that's changing it. And then there comes this conversation of, you know, which is better for the environment because that type of clothing has its own negative effects somehow. Uh, so uh, that's the the next step in, in the conversation. Also, that's why you were saying that leather makers are going to have to reposition themselves also saying, hey, well, this isn't as harmful for the environment as some of that other stuff could be. You might remember years back if you bought synthetic leather, might not have been very nice. It probably looked pretty plasticky. Well, the, a lot of those materials have really advanced and there's so many of them. There's so many different types of synthetic materials and they've become a lot better. They're, they're now like really good imitations of leather. They're breathable, they're comfortable. And so there's just been an explosion there in that, in that market. And there's so much choice. And that's also part of what's hurting leather, just like increased competition. And then in terms of the environmental part of it, a lot of these synthetics are plastic. So that's not great for yeah. the environment. Right, right. Um, I, however, I, the ones that people really like right now and are paying a lot of money for or, you know, you might have shoes that are made of like recycled plastic bottles or something like that. And and I think there's also some leather that's like made of like fruit or, you know, like some really innovative materials that are that have some kind of eco-conscious story behind them. Like people Consumers really love that right now, and they're really flocking to those um, yeah, materials as it, well. It's an interesting problem that we have to tackle. We're eating more beef than ever, and, and the same thing with dairy cows and things like that. So this is just a natural byproduct of it. We're going to have those hides because we're consuming so much of the beef. And you know, if we're respecting the animals, it would only be respectful to use the entirety of it also. Lydia Mulvaney, food and agriculture reporter for Bloomberg, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, for this week, my favorite story, the chicken sandwich wars. They're over for now. Popeye's had the most successful product launch in their history with their new chicken sandwich, and all it took was a couple of tweets between them and their rival Chick-fil-A, and the wars started. There was long lines, and eventually, Popeye's just sold out completely. We spoke to Kate Taylor, retail correspondent for Business Insider, about this chicken sandwich craze and how Popeye's employees hated life during the past two weeks. It has been truly wild. So what happened was earlier in August, Popeye's said it's going to have a classic chicken sandwich that's going to add to the menu. They launched the new sandwich. People kind of start trying it and the response is really, really good. But then it's about a week later that things really get out of control when Popeye's and Chick-fil-A kind of have a little bit of a Twitter spat that just erupts into everyone debating about what the best chicken sandwich is. And that really is what propelled this whole thing. Chick-fil-A, actually, they've been hitting super high marks. I think they became the um, the most favorite fast food restaurant not too long ago, according to some surveys and studies. Um, so Chick-fil-A has been kind of sitting at the top, and they sent this tweet to Popeyes basically saying, thanks for mimicking the original, something to that effect. And <laughs> it, it, it's it's actually a super fun story all the people at Popeye's gathered in a conference room. They decided, how are we going to respond? It was like all hands on deck. It took 15 minutes for them to craft what they were going to say. And they responded back with y'all good. And then boom, everybody started going crazy. As you said, the conversation started going from there, which one's best. Everybody's fighting on Twitter and it started these chicken sandwich wars. It was such a perfect response from Popeye's just to kind of have Chick-fil-A be doing this subtweet where they aren't mentioning Popeye's by name even. But it's clear that they're talking about Popeye's. So Popeye's is able to immediately kind of be like, we see you. 
And people love that from Popeye's because, like, Chick-fil-A has been around for a while. They've had, they invented the chicken sandwich, as they say. To have Popeye's as this kind of upstart willing to be like, okay, like, we saw what you did and we're willing to do you one better is it's perfect for Twitter. And I think that people love to kind of have these chains actually like seem to be fighting on Twitter where everyone can take a side on this issue and keep debating it, which is what happened extensively last week. Yeah. Chick-fil-A did it to themselves. They really just helped Popeye's elevate this whole thing uh, to crazy levels. So let's talk about how crazy things got because there was lines out the door at Every, pretty much every Popeye's location, they were selling out early on in the day. This whole chicken sandwich run was supposed to last them till the end of September. And here we are just earlier this week, they announced they're completely sold out and they have to get a whole another line of chicken suppliers so they can start the whole process all over again. All across the country, locations were selling out after only having them in stores for less than two weeks. Right. It was amazing to kind of see. And then the downside of that is these poor workers who are in the store kind of being paid a little bit above minimum wage, not making a ton of money, are dealing with these angry customers who have been hearing about the chicken sandwich. They show up. It's not there. And they take it out on the workers. Yeah. So I, I while mean, everyone is at first so excited about this, it kind of turns dark for employees, especially pretty quickly. You spoke to a bunch of Popeye's employees and they were ready to quit. Uh, they were not having a good time. Tell us about that. One of the most interesting people who I spoke to was this woman who was working in a New Jersey location. Um, it's kind of as things are at their fever pitch, it's just getting out of control. She said that she just walked out in the middle of making two chicken sandwiches. She just put the sandwiches down and was like, I quit. I can't do this anymore. And just like walked out the door because wow. these customers were yelling. They were angry. The crowds were out of control. She was like, I'm not making enough money to deal with this. Like I can work at a different chain that... I don't have to deal with these crowds of angry people yelling at me trying to get this chicken sandwich. So basically, people were just working super long hours dealing with crowds of people, and it wasn't an enjoyable situation for them. It was a pretty terrible situation, really. My favorite example from your article was an 18-year-old Popeye's crew member who said, I, I was working like a slave in the back, prepping the buns with pickles and spicy mayo, and that they estimated they made about 600 sandwiches on a Saturday during an 11 hour shift. That's crazy. This is a hard situation. These workers are going through a lot and it's it's not an easy job for them to be on their feet all day making these chicken sandwiches, um, especially because they are responsible for if this is a success or not. If they're putting out chicken sandwiches that aren't up to standards, people wouldn't have been so excited to try them. Exactly. Uh, okay, the last question I have because your office there at Business Insider did do taste tests for the Popeye's chicken sandwich and the Chick-fil-A one. Who's the winner? Oh, man. I Popeye's had a really good chicken sandwich. I have to give it to them. It was actually, the hype was warranted. Um, I also love Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich. I think Chick-fil-A's is good for more of an everyday thing. It's not as decadent as Popeye's, but if you're going for kind of treat yourself, really enjoy a chicken sandwich. I don't think you can top Popeye's. That is a very good sandwich. Kate Taylor, retail correspondent at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. 
give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.